Today's scripture comes from Exodus 20, verses 1 to 15. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Well, please be seated. As Jake mentioned, my name is Paul. I'm part of the team here, and I too welcome you this morning. Uh, This morning, we are continuing in our series in Exodus 20, in which we've been exploring the Ten Commandments, or what we've been calling the Ten Words. And these words are commands that are graciously given to us uh, by God, given to his people as a picture of what a saved people or a people set apart by God look like. The words are not a means of salvation. Keeping, Keeping the words or obeying the law is not a way in which we're saved, but rather they give us a picture of what a saved people look like. They show us as we truly are. They help us to see what God is like. Uh, help us to behold his character. And then they shape us more and more into his likeness. They make us more godly in all that we do. See, the ten words, they are a gift to us. They're, they're intended to lead us, God's people, into true life and flourishing. For the good of the world, for the glory of God. And as much as the words were intended for the original hearers, uh, they're equally as much intended for us. Now, just before we get into um, our text today, just invite you to pray with me. Yeah, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the God who has spoken and the God who has graciously revealed himself to us. Lord, would you help us? Help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear and help us to have hearts that are soft, receptive hearts, Lord. By your spirit, would you do a work in us Uh, to behold your beauty, to love your word, and to live in light of it. We ask for this grace in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, the other day I was driving uh, to the marina in Lions Bay, and you have to drive down this, this hill through the residential neighborhood and I came up to a point in the road um, where they had one of those digital signs that tell you the, the speed you're going. And, and as I made my way past that point, the, the sign, you know, 
lit up and showed me my speed. And it's one of those ones where, like, even if you're going slightly over, it starts flashing. It starts yelling at you to slow down. But this one was a little bit different because it had another feature. Not only did it start flashing at me, a red, grumpy face lit up below the numbers. I'd never seen one like it. See, the sign was, was trying to shame me for going too fast. But what was interesting was my response. I didn't feel shame. I just actually laughed it off because it seemed silly to me because in my opinion, I was going within the limits. I wasn't going too fast for the street that I was on. And this sign just seemed excessive for the circumstances. Now, not long after, I happened to go past the exact same point in the road. But this time, I tried with, with everything in me to go the limit. Not because I really wanted to obey the speed limit, because I was really curious what would happen if I did the right thing. So I crawled past the sign, and I'm watching it and with, with Sherry, and I was dumbfounded because I got nothing from it. It didn't light up. It didn't give me a happy face. There were no thumbs up. There was, there was no recognition that I had done the right thing. It didn't even like post a number that told the onlookers that I was playing by the rules. See, and when it comes to the law, I think this reveals something in my life, and likely many of our lives, about how we view not just keeping the civil law, but how we view keeping God's law. See, first, when it comes to God's law, we can believe that there are times where close enough is okay. We can believe that the limits of the law don't fully apply to us. And the second thing is, like, like the sign that gave no reward, in areas of our lives, we can believe that obedience offers little benefit. But this is why we need the eighth word along with the other, ten, other nine words. We need the word, you shall not steal, to actually help us see ourselves more clearly and see the limits within which we're supposed to live. And to help us see more fully the grace of God and the goodness that he has for us. We need it so that we can turn from ourself and our blindness and turn toward all that God has for us. So this morning, we're going to look at three things from our text. We're going to look at the command. So what is the scope of the command? What, what are the limits with, with which we are living under you shall not steal? What's the cause? So why do we break the command? Why do we go against God's word? And what's the cure? How do we live in light of the eighth word? Now, as is the case in most societies or cultures, uh, we have a, a, a consensus that stealing is, is wrong. And mostly, if, if not fully, we can agree on what it means to steal. We understand stealing to be taking something uh, without permission or without intention to return it. Additionally, it can be withholding of something that is owed. Uh, it can be not paying a debt. Within this, there are the obvious things uh, that fall under the command to, to not steal. There's, you know, don't rob a bank. Thou shall not embezzle. Uh, thou shall not defraud seniors of their retirement savings. 
and thou shalt not commit identity theft. And don't shoplift either. See, these are some of the things that we easily identify with stealing. And as we survey the list, we wonder how the eighth word applies to us. Because we aren't doing those things. Right? We aren't doing the things that are most commonly understood as stealing. See, in all likelihood, we haven't held up the local gas station. We haven't recently slipped something into our pockets at the local store. We haven't defrauded somebody and, and cleaned out their life savings. So we can feel pretty good about ourselves because we feel like we're, we stand pretty good as it goes with the eighth word. But perhaps, looking a little deeper, we may see that the reach of the command extends beyond what immediately comes to mind when we hear, thou shall not steal. Consider for a moment some other ways in which we cross the line, even socially acceptable ways. Things like uh, taking materials from our workplace for personal use, like post-it notes or pens. Or maybe using company resources without permission could be photocopying, could be using a company car outside of, of what's agreed upon. It could be using company perks that are intended for a client, but we use it for our own enjoyment. Or, or think about the, the recent scandal in the BC legislature submitting receipts for reimbursement that are not work expenses. Or how about this one, stealing company time. Right? This could be running errands uh, while you're on the clock or scrolling through social media when we're supposed to be working. But the command even goes further than this. We can also break the eighth word by not paying what we owe. Now, a few years ago, we had uh, two dogs. One was given to us, and the other we got through a rescue organization. Now, the dog that was first given to us, we had uh, had it, and, and it had been licensed by the previous owner. So every year, a bill would come in the mail to renew the license. And reluctantly, we would pay the bill, finding all kinds of reasons why we shouldn't have to, but we paid it anyways. And then along came our second dog. It came from a rescue. It had never been licensed. And so we never licensed that dog. But every time the bill came due, there was a part of me that felt guilty because I knew that the right thing to do would be to license our second dog, to pay what is owed. Now, shortly after writing this, I sent $46 to Burnaby for Dodger. So there are times where we owe someone something, but we may choose to withhold what we owe, like paying for a dog license, or it could be something we owe to a family member, something we owe to a friend. Uh, it may be getting creative with our taxes, right? Not, um, not admitting to all of the income that we get, which does include tips and gratuities. It could be using a service without paying the fees downloading movies, using copyrighted material, material or piggybacking on a neighbor's Wi-Fi, or using a, a, a streaming service outside of the user agreement. See, when we withhold paying what is rightly owed, we break the eighth command. 
And we may find all kinds of ways in which we can, can justify our actions. As Jen Wilkins says, whatever our sticky-fingered sins, they don't come close to real stealing, and we can believe that. And so we compare, because there's always somebody who's stealing to a worse degree than we are. Or we can minimize. We can say, you know, it's, it's not a big deal. It won't even be noticed. And, and it's nothing compared to the profit that the company's making. Or we rationalize, you know, the company owes me way more than this. But at the end of the day, we still find ourselves on the wrong side of the eighth word because there's no justification that will excuse us. Regardless of how small the amount, someone is being mistreated, someone is being made to absorb the cost, someone's been offended, and there's no way to justify what we've done. But deep down, we know these things are wrong, and yet we can find ourselves continuing to cut corners on the eighth word. So why do we do it? What's the cause? What's behind this? Well, in the first book of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, we find the story of Adam and Eve. It's God's first created man and woman. God had set them in paradise, in this garden temple, where they enjoyed life with God and the abundance of God's goodness toward them. They were made in God's image. They were unspoiled, given everything they could ever need. They had the fullness of relationship, the richest of food, meaningful work, and dominion over the earth. But there was one thing, one thing that God had made that he did not give to them. One thing God made that he had placed in the middle of the garden that they were not to possess. The fruit of one tree among a multitude that was not for them to take. But God's enemy, the deceiver, the serpent, he comes along and he tempts Adam and Eve. But not primarily with the object that's in the middle of the garden. Not with the fruit that's hanging from the one tree. But he tempts them with an idea. The idea that God is holding out on them. That, that, that God isn't withholding the fruit because it would harm them, but because God doesn't have their best interest in mind. The serpent suggests that he's holding back because he's not the good God that he claims to be. And with that one idea deeply rooted in their hearts, they took what didn't belong to them. They seized for themselves what they were never intended to have. Now that same belief about God, it's continued on from generation to generation. And today, it infects our thinking too. Like Adam and Eve, at times, in areas of our lives, we can buy into the lie and we can begin to, to question if God is holding out on us. We wonder if, if God truly has our best interest in mind. See, like Adam and Eve, we question God's goodness and we can doubt his sufficiency. And as doubt creeps in, so do other ideas about what we truly need. Just as the serpent offered Adam and Eve a God alternative, the forbidden fruit, we are being offered a variety of alternatives day in and day out through the culture that we are living in. 
Whether it's the movies we watch, the series we stream, social media pop-ups on our screens, we're being led to believe that there's another way to the abundant life apart from God. Peter Lightheart comments on this in his book on the Ten Commandments. He says, advertisements bombard us with the enticements to believe. Contrary to Jesus, that life consists in the abundance of possessions. Christ City, here's what we need to see. See, the problem of stealing isn't fundamentally a problem with our resources. It's not an issue with what we're lacking, but stealing is a problem with our view of God and ultimately our worship of God. Stealing is the fruit of idolatry. It's the, the outward expression of trusting God alternatives for one's life and livelihood. As mentioned, it can be the idol of possessions, right? Those can be the things that we um, put in place of God. But there are other idols too. It could be the idol of acceptance. That means stealing for the approval of others. It could be the idol of pleasure, stealing for the adrenaline rush. Or the idol of comfort, stealing as an alternative to working hard. Or the idol of security stealing for fear of not having enough. Each one is an expression of distrusting God to care for us and to provide what is best for us. Now, what's more? As the promises of God alternatives entangle our hearts and lead us away from dependence on God, the troubles of our world amplify their voices and magnify their power in our lives. So you just turn on the TV, turn, turn on the radio, skim a news feed, or strike up a conversation at a gas pump, and invariably we're going to hear some talk of the strain of our current economic situation. Right? We're inundated with talk about the skyrocketing cost of food, rising transportation costs, issues with the supply chain, Consumer goods becoming more and more expensive right across the board. And our, that our wages can't keep up with the inflation. And if that's not enough, it's all complicated by war, climate change, a pandemic, and political polarization. Right? We're living in the midst of economic uncertainty that's unlike anything this generation has seen. And it's weighing on us. I think we all feel it. It's hard, it's depressing, it's overwhelming. And as we look at our financial situations and, and the cost of living inches closer and closer to the threshold of what we can afford, we wonder, when's the relief going to come? Right? Here we find ourselves being told on the one hand to put our trust in stuff, to consume more, to take what we can, but on the other hand, we're being told that we may never have the things we'd like. The basic things that many people in previous generations enjoyed. Good things. A modest home. A fully paid off, reliable car. A savings account. Freedom from debt. We're being told that we may never have these things. That we will likely not be able to afford these things. And we find ourselves in this tension conflicted by what God is saying and by what the world is telling us. 
And so as Jake mentioned to me this week, what do we do? Well, we pinch our pennies, a.k.a. we steal. We get our pens from work. We find our neighbor's Wi-Fi password. And what's more, we can become stingy, hoarding our money, our homes, our time, and failing to pay the greater debt of love that we owe to one another. But there's something we need to understand in all of this. See, that the problem of stealing isn't simply a result of the pressures of life that we're feeling. In the book, How People Change, the authors discuss the heat of life as it relates to the heart. And in their model of change, the heat refers to the problems or pressures of life. It can be good things or it can be bad things. It can be increased wealth, popularity, fame, or success at work. It can also be spiritual issues, health issues, relationship issues. It can be uh, financial challenges, difficult circumstances that are outside of our control. And the idea is that as we look at our lives through the, the lens of God's word, we discover that the circumstances of life don't direct our hearts. Rather, they expose the true nature of our hearts. See, the heat, the pressures that we face, they don't control our hearts, but they reveal them. So the economic strain that we feel isn't making us stingy and is not causing us to steal, but it's revealing what our hearts trust in more than God. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything, everything you do flows from it. See, the problem of thieving isn't what we don't possess. It isn't the troubled times we're living in. It's disbelief in God and trust in God alternatives that then yields the fruit of idolatry, a self-centered life that takes what it wants most. And this leads to our third point, the cure. In Mark Rooker's book, Ten Commandments, Ethics for the 21st Century, he says this, the antidote to stealing is found in Philippians 4.19. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. See, the cure for thieving hearts is found only in a deep abiding trust in the grace of God, the sufficiency of God given through Jesus Christ. Christ said, you hear that again? The cure for our thieving hearts is found only in deep abiding trust in the grace of God, the sufficiency of God given through Jesus. Now in Luke chapter 19, in the story of Zacchaeus, we have a picture of this. Luke 19, starting in verse 1, it says, He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, 
Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. See, tax collectors, they were notorious in Jesus' day. They were known for being corrupt, uh, taking more than their rightful share, and they were seen as traitors for their dealings with the Romans. And Zacchaeus, as the chief of among the tax collectors, was well known for his ill-gotten gain. He had he'd grown wealthy at the expense of his own people, and they judged him for it. He was held with contempt, and he was treated as an outcast. Now, he had heard about Jesus. He'd heard about this rabbi, this prophet, this miracle worker. And Zacchaeus wasn't really sure what was true of him. See, this Jesus had caught this stir among the people, and Zacchaeus wanted to see for himself who Jesus really was. And as he positioned himself to get a glimpse of Jesus, the unthinkable happened. Jesus came to him. And Jesus called his name. Out of a multitude who were clamoring for Jesus' attention, it was Zacchaeus who was singled out. In an odd turn of events, the one who was seeking would become the one who was sought out. And Jesus went with Zacchaeus to his home and entered into his hospitality. See, the man who was outcast because of his sin, he found one who welcomed him one who accepted him, one who loved him, even knowing exactly who he was and what he had done. And there's Zacchaeus. There's this unexpected, unrivaled grace that he's met with, and it meets him full force. And it says that he received Jesus joyfully. And that encounter would change his life. That would set him on a new course, a new trajectory, a new way of living. See, he was accepted now. He was forgiven. He'd found freedom from his old ways. And he was given this abundant grace to live in new ways as Jesus declared that salvation had come. Salvation from his old, dead life. And the story of Zacchaeus, it says something to us. It points to what Jesus gives all who trust in him. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. See, Jesus paid what we owed. He emptied his pockets so that ours could be full. He took our sin upon himself. On the cross, he paid for our sin. And then conquering death through his resurrection... He's given more than we could imagine, full, abundant life, unending life, the riches of grace to us who believe. See, he gave what we could never earn, beg, borrow, or steal, so that we would never need to take what was never ours to own. Like Zacchaeus, having been set free from sin, We are no longer bound to our thieving ways. We've been liberated in Christ to live out the law of God for the glory of God 
and for our good. We've been given grace to live in these new ways. Now, what does this look like? Well, the story of Zacchaeus gives us some ideas. In verse 8, while Zacchaeus is entertaining Jesus, he stood up and said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Now, here's what we need to see. See, in light of the grace he'd been given, Zacchaeus responds in tangible ways. There is action in response to what he's believed. As he's come to faith in Christ, there are new behaviors that begin to um, be part of his life. And he responds in these ways, by repenting, by making amends, and by living generously. And like Zacchaeus, those of us, as we're in Christ, we are now free to live as a repentant people, a people who have turned from sin and who continue to confess our sin as an expression of ongoing faith in what Jesus has done. And then a people who will seek reconciliation, making things right as far as we are able. So we repent. We resolve to turn from our sin, to acknowledge it, and to no longer continue in it. We make amends. When I was a teenager, um, friends of, of mine, we would hang out at the local corner store, and, and, and it, this trend began of us stealing from the store. We'd slip in and grab some chocolate bars or whatever, and, uh, and I, I was fully engaged in it. Um, I think it was the idol of acceptance and my addiction to sugar. Um, that's a different, different story, but, but we were in there and we were taking things and it went on for a while and eventually stopped. I don't know why, but months later I got into more trouble and God, uh, convicted me. He met me in the midst of my sin and he called me out of it. And one of the things he did is he convicted me of my stealing from that store and he made it abundantly clear that while there's grace in confessing to him, that the outward working of that, that, that mercy and grace that I would receive would be making amends. And so I, I, took, I, I totaled up what I thought maybe I had taken from the store. I didn't know for sure. I, I think I, I put $80 in an envelope and I mailed it to the store. Now, it's not a perfect picture of making amends, I admit that. I could have done better, but but see, God at times calls us not just to confess our sin to him, but also to make things right. And I think we need to see that. And, and Zacchaeus did this, right? It says that he would repay those he had defrauded fourfold. And where, where our conscience is alarming us and the spirit is convicting us, I would say, be attentive. Perhaps the Lord is calling you to make an amends in an area of your life. And as much as we repent and make amends, there's more. And this is, this is the beautiful part, Christ City. We don't just stop doing the wrong, but now we live in these new ways of, of generosity according to the grace that God has given us. Do you notice that Zacchaeus didn't only seek to pay back what he had defrauded? But it says that he gave the half of his wealth to the poor. 
As he turned from taking what wasn't his, he turned toward giving joyously and generously. See, the one who calls us not to steal is also so gracious to us, and he calls us to live in light of that grace. He's given us all things in Christ, the riches of glory. He's given it all to us. See, there's, there's nothing that we have that, that isn't from God's hand. And we, and we need to know this, that, that he is the one who owns it all. And what we have is just a gift for us to steward. Job 41.11 says, Who has a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Or Psalm 24.1, it says this, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. You see, Yahweh, the one true God, the all-sufficient one, the one who made all things, the one who sustains all things, is the ultimate owner of all things, and he has graciously given us what we have. The one who owns it all, he has this generous heart, and he's given us everything from our life to our possessions. See, there's nothing you own and nothing you possess. There's nothing I own or possess that hasn't been given by his hand. Yes, it's given for us to to meet our needs. And yes, it's given for our enjoyment because God loves to give good gifts to his people. Praise the Lord. He's so good. But also he's given it for the good of others. He's given it for us to meet others who are in need. And as we've been set free from seeing possessions as self-serving to seeing possessions as a gift of grace from a generous God that loves to give, loves to bless, loves to see others flourish for his namesake. Just as he has been generous toward us, now he's called us to be generous toward others, to live with gratitude and and, and this eye toward generous living. Living out the truth of what Jesus said. In Acts 20.35, he said, it's better to give than receive. It's better to give than receive. Now, as we seek to live in these ways, one thing we need to understand, one thing we'll discover is that the grace of God is dispensed differently in my life than your life. Each one of us will receive God's grace by different means and by different measure. It's not going to be the same for all of us. And and some of you, you're able by God's grace to live within your means and, and you're living generously And to grow in generosity may mean that God will give you more. But it also may mean that he's just calling you to live more sacrificially now. That may be the grace that God gives you is to to sacrifice even more than what you're currently doing. Or maybe you're struggling to make ends meet. And my heart goes out to you because I know these times are overwhelming. Maybe you're working hard, you're living frugally, and yet at the end of the month, you're still struggling. You're wondering, you know, how it's all going to add up. And God's grace to you may be a little bit different. It could be that he gives more. But it also may be grace given by different means through his people. He may say that the step towards generous living will begin with asking for help. And and if you're struggling, I would invite you to, to talk to Jake or Heath or Daniel or myself and, and allow us to come alongside and allow God's grace to, to be at work in your life through his people. 
The one who steals for the thrill of it, what does grace look like for them? Well, it might be grace to turn from sin. Grace to learn to enjoy God and his good gifts. And the grace to, to find joy in blessing others. For another, it might be uh, the grace to work and to work hard. Ephesians 4.28 says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now, in our culture, there is a growing trend that says it's okay to live at the expense of others, that it's okay to live off of society. And please understand that I'm not speaking about um, those who cannot work for health reasons, for physical or mental issues that, that would prevent you to work. But there are some who are able to work, and yet they're working minimally while living off the livelihood of others. And the eighth word is calling, perhaps for a full week's work in their life, and the grace for them is to work so that they could provide for themselves, but also that they could be generous toward others, that they, they could meet the needs of others. Regardless of where we find ourselves. See, the eighth word is calling us to steal no longer. But instead, by God's grace, in whatever form it takes to grow in generosity. Now, why does this matter? Because we know when we steal that it's going to impact someone in some way. We know this, right? It costs someone something, the individual, the independent business owner, the, the corporation, the community, the taxpayer, right? There's always a cost to theft. And the cost is rarely uh, contained to the value of the item that was stolen, right? There's the value of the thing that was stolen and then the cost of time, human resources, financial resources, community resources that are spent trying to make the wrong right. Jen Wilkins says this, that the act itself is an expense, but so also the work it takes to rectify the act. And that every year, millions of dollars are spent to prevent, prosecute various forms of theft in the United States. Right? Because stealing always costs something, and that should be enough. But when it comes to God's people, when it comes to us, there's more. There's more at stake. See, Titus 2, 9 and 10 says this, Paul's writing, he says, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything, in everything, they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. See, as the 10 words paint this picture of what a people redeemed by God look like, what living according to a kingdom culture set apart for his glory ought to look like, right? As the Israelites were to be this distinct people, this distinct nation and character and conduct that was different from all the surrounding nations, so too we, God's people, are to stand apart from the culture that we live in. As Mark Rooker points out, the commandments are instruction regarding the shape a redeemed life is to take in everyday affairs. So Christ said, you don't miss this. Don't miss what the Apostle Paul is, is saying to us. That the shape of our life will affect the impact of our witness. He says to his people, by their conduct in everything they do, including not pilfering, 
that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. See, what we do with the eighth word, it's going to either display the beauty of the gospel or it's going to obscure it. We're going to either show Jesus as he truly is, beautiful, amazing, glorious, or we're going to veil what Jesus is like to this watching world. And that's why it matters so much. See, because as we honor the eighth word, we evidence the truth and the power of the gospel. And we display the glory of Christ. We proclaim the riches we have in Christ and display the joy and peace that we have in believing. Through the eighth word, as is the case with all the ten words, it teaches us, the people of God, to live in light of the character of God, displaying the fullness of God, his goodness, his sufficiency, his grace to a world that needs rescue, right? People that need rescue from the same thieving heart that took root in Adam and Eve in the garden all those years ago. Christ City, may we hear God's word to us today and may we receive the grace that he has for us. May we walk in obedience by faith for his namesake, for the good of his people, but also for the spread of the gospel in this neighborhood, that Jesus would be seen as glorious and gracious and good. May that be so. Let's pray. God of all grace, humbly we come before you and we just, um, we say thank you for loving us. Thank you for for rescuing us from from self-centeredness and thieving hearts. Thank you for your rich welcome that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, would you help us to um, see the ways in which we transgress your law? Would you help us to live in new ways? Would you help us to grow in generosity, to to grow in, in living a life that magnifies your goodness, your sufficiency? Would you do a work in our lives to make us more into the image of your Son? And as you do, would you um, do a work in this neighborhood and this world through us? Lord, we praise you. We give you thanks. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, everyone. This is Jake, lead pastor of Christ City Church, East Vancouver. And I want to let you know about a few things. First, if you're not a part of a local church, let me invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 2605 East Pender Street in East Vancouver for worship, word, and sacrament. Second, if you are new and you want to get connected, let me say welcome. Christ City Church East Vancouver is a neighborhood church committed to making missional disciples for the sake of the neighborhood. If you want to be a part of or hear more of what we believe God has called us to do in East Vancouver, please reach out to me at jake at christcitychurch.ca.